vintage sand. Hello, 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 loyal listeners, all three of you. No, we're up to about 12 now, I understand, and more on the way. Yes, it is your film history podcast, the film history podcast, dare I say. Vintage Sand, Team Vintage Sand being inclusive, and we'll say hello to everybody. Johnny Meyer, say hello to the nice people. Hello, people. All right, Michael Edmond, Minnesota Mike, saying hello to the nice people. Hello to the nice people. See, look how happy he is. And your humble narrator, Josh Cabot, welcome to episode 48. We're closing in on the big 5-0, man. That's amazing. Our episode called The Union Forever, A, so we could get a Citizen Kane quote in there, so we got that out of the way, and B, because that, of course, we are recording this on Friday the 13th, lucky for us. Uh, and in the middle of the labor strife that continues to go on in Hollywood, the at this point uh, in the narrative, the writers have uh, settled their strike, but the actors' uh, talks just fell apart yeah, again. Yeah, collapsed yesterday. Yeah, so that looks like it's going nowhere. And so we are we're going to talk about a subject that is very, very untouched by Hollywood for the most part. And I don't think any of the films we're going to talk about today are were big hits. I mean, a lot were critically well received. Um, but we're talking about films that deal with labor issues, that deal with unions and unionization. And it's strange in one way because those situations are so inherently dramatic. I mean, you know, the conflict is so interesting. But of course, if you know the history of Hollywood, Hollywood has never wanted unions and has always tried to do everything they can to subvert unions. So it's not entirely surprising that there is not a huge number of Hollywood films about labor and labor movements to choose from. So we're going to hopefully turn you on to some... uh, some movies that you haven't heard of or seen before. But before we do that, I want to take a a sideways step because um, I'm, as a teacher, a lifetime union member in a couple of unions, but Mike is a member of SAG, of uh, SAG-AFTRA, of the very union that is on strike. And, you know, the the, the standard line on this, people are complaining, well, it's just a bunch of millionaires arguing against a bunch of billionaires, and why should I care about it? And that could not be further from the truth. So I'm not a millionaire. Right. Michael is not a millionaire. I can vouch for that. He's a billionaire. Um, and even if you were a millionaire, you couldn't buy better coffee than chock full of nuts. So there you go. <laughs> See, I got to make a chock full of nuts reference. I love podcasting. Come on. So I don't want to turn it into an interview, but I think Michael has a lot of insight to offer on what the real issues are here. And so, Michael, let me begin by asking you, in this strike, what's really at stake here? What are the issues? Well, the issues are paying actors who are not stars, who are not big names, a fair wage. Very few actors make... um, I, I, I don't have the percentage, and I should have had it. Had it. Uh, don't make more than ten thousand a year. I mean, I would assume yeah. that's over ninety yeah. percent. And I, I've never made more than ten thousand a year. I mean, I, I just you know, and it's not because I'm a rotten actor, but uh, yeah, these guys dead are, silence. No comments. <laughs> no. I've seen him act. He's good, folks. No comment. Um, but I'm going to another episode. But I'm going to use. Um, for what uh, working actors do get 
basically the producers are trying to take that away and, and through, the, through technology. And I'm going to use two examples. One of them is someone that John and I studied with, who's no longer with us, a, a gentleman named Stan. He was retired from his job, but he did all, he did extra work all the time. And uh, he was an Italian looking, so he often did uh, extra work for the Sopranos. Ah. But he got one gig uh, that lasted two months. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. it was I, was. I was working with him at the time. Right. Yeah. And that was the uh, remake of uh, The Steppard Wives, the dreadful uh, Matthew Broderick, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, Nicole Kidman. Yeah, yeah say pre- no more. It was pretty bad. The original wasn't that good either. True. But, but that's. But somehow, because of delays, because and because of union rules, when you show up, you get paid eight hours, no matter what. Right. Stan made several thousand dollars because he literally worked five days a week for two months. And under the new, what they would like to do is they would just like to use you once and then have the AI technology... So they could capture like a 360-degree image of you and then just insert you and manipulate you as they see fit. And not pay. And not pay. The other is streaming. And I do have a friend of mine who I'm not going to mention his name. Uh, He asked not to, but he said I could use um, His his examples. He does make a living as an actor, mostly on stage. He does um, musicals out of town. and, um, but he's done, and I'm just taking, he occasionally will do a co-starring role. Co-starring is you have a few lines in one scene. And so you're listed in the credits as you're co-starring. Listed. Okay, exactly. got it. Yes. You're, um, and he was on one show called Bull for CBS. Oh yeah, about the lawyer. Right. Sure, sure. And I think he only had a few lines. But because the show is syndicated is in other markets it is the gift he says i got another check for bull and i did that show two years ago wow he i mean he calls it the gift that keeps giving now he's not a millionaire from it but he's made a few thousand dollars for basically two days of work but you know he had lines he did play a part and and so how does streaming change that relationship? Ah, it's simple. Uh, he just also did an episode of uh, only um, only murders in the building. I can remember the name. Only murders in the building. Big fan. And um, he had a part, and it was a sizable part. I told John what it was, yeah. but I'm not going to mention the part on the air. Fair enough. And he only will get paid for what he did. Because once it's streaming, there's no syndication. There's no telling who's there's no, there's watching. There's no way to keep track of so how many it, times it's ah. being shown and mm-hmm. how many people are watching it. And so, how do they pay you? Exactly. So he got he's got paid for two days. He loved working on it. He, he just thought it was great, and and he doesn't even stream. But there's got. But what I don't understand as a layperson is that there's got to be some easy way to calculate the number of people. Who are yeah. number of streams that happen of a particular well, show and then pay accordingly. And that's what the actors want. Right. <laughs> and that's pro- what the pro- I'm sure there is. And we had the same issue when movies first started going to video. Right. Actors were not getting paid every time it was rented, and they should have been. And, yeah. and, and, eventually, back in, and eventually they resolved that issue. Exactly. And back in 1960, when the, yes. when the actors and the writers went With on TV. strike, it was about television. Television. Right. And that's, right. uh, believe it or not, 
The, the president then was Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Of, so uh, of, 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 the, of uh, the union, union yeah. yeah. So in other words, every time a new distribution form comes out, this mm-hmm. has to be re-adjudicated. Yeah. I, I don't understand. I mean, the studios aren't exactly suffering. No, no, they're not, not at all. Especially when you hear about studio chiefs' compensation being, you know, upwards of two hundred million in a couple of cases. Mm-hmm. So I will say one thing: I've been for years and years a big watcher of Bill Maher's show. And after his little tirade about, um, you know, the writers don't deserve a, a living, I thought to myself, you... Yes, so-and-so. Blam, blam, blam. <laughs> We've got to keep our, uh, million, our, our, our child-friendly rating. Millionaire, you know, and uh, I will never watch him again. That's how strongly I feel. Yeah, well, I stopped watching him for, for other reasons. So yeah, well, also him uh, kissing the rear end of... Uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, there's that too. Well, that and is, some of the things he said at the height of COVID. Yeah, well, he's a COVID denier. I mean, a, a vaccine denier. Yeah, hope that works out but for him. But the union thing was the last straw for me. So, so and, anyway, yes. So, and then my last question on this, Shoot. Michael, is you know, if you could project, you know, where do you think this is? What's what's the end game going to be? I don't know. I think the actors will win eventually because, fortunately. They can't make a movie without they can't, an actor. They can't make a <laughs> well, movie. they can with AI. Well, that's AI, why. Yeah, that's yeah not but, be very but um, you know, mo- the, nobody's wa- uh, crossing picket lines. I mean, Mr. Cruz says that there are issues on both sides. Another one of the twenty-one reasons why I dislike him so much. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's like Charlottesville and Trump. Good people yeah. on both sides. Yeah, that's what he's basically <laughs> saying. But ninety-nine uh, percent of uh, actors. Even people, uh, uh, stars, are definitely supporting it. Even people I didn't think would. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Rock is oh, yeah. very big. Yeah. Yep. And Fran Drescher's organ. The head of and she's, been she's great. really she been, been good. Yeah. No, I voted for her twice. <laughs> I'm sticking with the union. <laughs> she she, call, she calls me, too. Says I often get calls, recorded calls. Wow. Mrs. Yeah. Fran. Exactly. <laughs> it's like... Okay, I hear you. Yes, I'll do whatever you want, Miss Dreschler. Yes, President Dreschler. <laughs> so the, I, I don't mean to make light of it because I, I mean I, I don't make never made my living as an actor, and uh, but I I feel for people who do. No, well, I thank you for the perspective, yeah. Mike. And I, I don't think anyone who listens to this podcast is going to you know be under the delusion that this is a a you know a trivial or senseless thing. I mean, this is really important and livelihoods are at stake. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I've got to hope that it's going to work out in favor. It has worked out in the past, as John, as you mentioned, in the other, you know, when new media have come along yeah. to, uh, to distribute. And it worked for the writers. Of course, now this, the producers are saying, well, they're going to be less, less things made, you know, less productions. That's <sighs> right. <sighs> anyway. No, I know, and it's hard not to wish we were back in the good old days, but, you know, this this kind of nonsense makes the studio's old studio system look like a good thing. So, uh, at least they paid people. Well, say that to Olivia Havilland. Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, 
you know, thank you, Michael, for that. And no great stretch then to see that we, you know, we tying this into our main topic of discussion today, which, as I said, is films about labor movements, about workers and unions and such. And again, except with the exception of Norma Ray and, of course, Grapes of Wrath, I think there are not that many well-known films that we're talking about. So I think if you hang in there, folks, we're in for a treat. So we're going to be talking about those kind of movies. John, why don't you kick us kick us off with your first? Ah, my first movie is Blue Collar, 1978, directed by Paul Schrader, Woo-hoo! which is his first movie. Hard to believe because it's very assured, very assured. Oh, and he, it was he, he didn't direct the Yakuza. And, no, he didn't. And it was written by Schrader and his brother Leonard, Leonard. Uh, with Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafit Kodo. Um, the movie is both a portrayal of the lives of three auto workers in Michigan and what they soon discover is corrupt union practices. They feel that they've been, takes place in, uh, in Michigan, not in Detroit, but outside of Detroit. And, um, I forget, it's an auto plant? Yeah, yeah, yes, it's an auto plant. They're not treated well and they eventually become dissatisfied the way the union is reacting to their complaints. They feel like they're just really not doing much for them. They also all have various financial difficulties. Uh, the Harvey Keitel character is struggling to pay his bills for his family. His daughter needs orthodontic care. Uh, he's also moonlighting, working at a gas station, working two jobs. I don't know how someone can work two jobs working at a auto plant. Yeah, but there's that. I mean, my God, he must be exhausted. Richard Pryor, you find out, has been lying for years on his tax returns, saying that as many more children than he really has, right. <laughs> and finds out he has a big tax bill to play. Um, and Yafikoto is um, a former, he's an ex-convict, so there's a lot going on there with him. One of the really interesting things about the movie is their, their friendships, and how the pressure of, as the movie goes along, how, how those friendships evolve. But uh, what happens is that they become, they're really in financial straps, and they come up with this really stupid scheme to rob the union office. And when they go there, they find out there isn't as much money as they knew was there previously. (laughs) And then afterwards, the union is on TV and talking to the media, saying there was a lot more money stolen than actually was. And they realize that the union office that represents it is completely corrupt. They pocketed it, yeah. And they come up with a really dumb scheme to try to blackmail the office, which backfires on them. Um, And this puts a lot of pressure on their friendships. And by the end of the movie, um, the, the union has basically pitted, turned it into a race situation, too. And Which happens in one of my films yeah, as well. And Richard Pryor and uh, Harvey Keitel, are, they're, they're, they've become enemies. Uh, I don't want to say too much more. I'm going to ruin the movie for you because uh, it's, it's a movie that's about a serious subject, but there is a lot of humor in it. And as it evolves, it does become more and more serious, but it's, it's an excellent movie. It's, I, I, I almost, it's a movie I almost picked as one of our hidden gems. So I encourage people to see it. And it wasn't, uh, when it came out, it wasn't that successful, No, was it? no, uh, it kind of, as I remember, it kind of came and went. Uh, yeah, maybe it was a critical way... success, as I remember. It was yes. critically yeah. successful, yeah. but it did not have much of a run, if I remember. Yeah, maybe maybe because of the way it was promoted, I, I don't know. 
Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and that's that's one that has gone by the way. You see it sometimes on TCM or yeah, uh, yeah. yes, it shows, shows occasionally. Yeah. Shows occasionally on uh-huh. Turner Classic Movies. All right. So from 1978, Schrader's uh, Blue Collar. Great choice there, John. Uh, my first one is uh, going back to. Um, 1934, two of my films from the 30s, and this is uh, directed by the one, the only, can we finally admit that King Vitor is a freaking genius? I mean, and also just kind of revolutionary. I mean, the big parade is so good. The crowd, which I just did with my film society. Especially is, the early part of his career. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is Later he, on. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because the film I'm talking about, which is Our Daily Bread from 1934, is a very left-leaning film, and yet 15 years later he directed The Fountainhead. Yeah. You know, with Gary Cooper and Patricia yeah. Neal. So, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not a classic Hollywood red or conservative. It's kind of, he's just an interesting guy. But, you know, I also have to point out again that Vitor had the had the juice to walk into Irving Thalberg's office in 29 and say, for my first film, I want to do an all-black musical. Yeah. And Thalberg said, yes, and that was Hallelujah. And if you haven't seen Hallelujah, folks, check it out. It's a little patronizing now, but my goodness, the fact that it even got made yeah. is wonderful. No, so, no, for the time it was made, it's a milestone. Amazing. So The Crowd, which is my favorite Vitor film, his last silent film, and one of the true masterpieces of American silent film, unavailable on DVD for some reason, uh, is the story of John and Mary, two people who meet, and it's about their marriage and their lives together. Our Daily Bread picks up their story in 1934, and played by the two characters are played by different actors for for some interesting reasons, and it's the depression now, and John can't get any work, and so they they end up almost accidentally being given a piece of farmland, and so John says, "Well, we've got nothing else, so let's go." So out they go, and of course John knows nothing about working a farm, and they're they're about to give up, and. One day, John Quaylen shows up, you know, with his uh, his yumping yimini accent, and he is a farmer who's been tossed off his land in Minnesota. It's funny, I only thought of that as like a Dust Bowl phenomenon, like you see in Grapes of Wrath, as John will discuss, but it happened apparently all over the Midwest. And so, John gets the idea of inviting him to stay, since this guy knows how to farm, and is inspired then to essentially create an Americanized version of what you might call a Soviet-style collective farm. People come, dozens of people come, everyone contributes what they can, their own skills. There are carpenters and electricians and plumbers and, and other people like that, and they build this community. And it's inspired by a true story in, in Reader's Digest. Apparently this happened. So, of course, you can imagine, Vitor went to Thalberg with this idea, and Thalberg said, no, not a chance. Sorry, we love you, man, but we're not doing that. So uh, he independently financed it, and of course, not surprisingly, it was released by a United Artist with the help of Charlie Chaplin, who is sympathetic to uh, the cause. I mean, it, it, it's it's really kind of a socialist film and but as someone in the film says you know someone says hey isn't this idea kind of socialist and the character says well look where democracy's gotten us 
So, and first, you know, they face repossession and they're able to fight that off. And then the one part of the movie that really doesn't work, a blonde sort of Gene Harlow type comes and sews all kinds of chaos and almost pulls John away from it. But just as John is literally driving away with this with the with this platinum blonde lady and um he sees that the water is running again one of the big obstacles they face is drought so the water is running again so they go back and in a scene that could have been directed by Eisenstein or Podovkin or Dovzhenko they've got to dig a trench from the river an irrigation ditch to yeah. their crops uh, in time, otherwise, you know, the crops are going to die in a day or two. And the, it's it's such a beautiful example of montage, just a beautiful yeah, piece a, of it's film. It's a great scene, really inspiring. And you just like, how did anyone, even you know, even without the studios, how did anyone get this film made? And it is maybe the most left leaning film ever created by a legitimate Hollywood director. You know, especially one as 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 amazing as King Vitor. So I mean I just you know, to qualify, my favorite film about labor and labor movements, just to remind, was uh, Salt of the Earth from nineteen fifty four about this, which we did as part of our last Hidden Gems episode. But I gotta tell you, this runs a really close second. It's not really political it's much more humanist it's about what people can do if they take care of each other if yes. they look after each other and that you know that was a really critical message in 1934 you know right in the depths very depths of the depression so check it out the one and only king Vitor. Our Daily Bread, a rough sequel to The Crowd, although you don't have to have seen The Crowd to, uh, to appreciate the film. Really a one-of-a-kind film. Nothing quite like it in, Couldn't agree more. in American history. Lovely yeah. film. Yeah. All right, Mikey, what do you got? Okay, all three of my films are British, and two of them are comedies. And uh, are we doing it in chronological? Or however you... I'm doing it chronologically. Okay, but I'm going to do this chronologically. Two, more, two of them are from the 50s, and I'm going to start off with what I consider my favorite labor film, The Man in the White Suit. Yes. Directed by Alexander McKendrick, with a screenplay by McKendrick, Roger McDougall, and John Dighton. And uh, from 1951, black and white. And um, Alec Guinness plays Sidney Stratton, a young research chemist who invents an incredibly strong fiber which repels dirt and never wears out. From this fabric, a suit is made, which is brilliant white because it cannot absorb dye, and is slightly luminous because it contains radioactive elements. <laughs> Both the management and the trade unions try to stop the invention because once consumers have purchased enough cloth, demand will drop, and the textile industry is out of business. Right. And I, I don't want to say anything more about what the a plot of this idea, movie. This is <laughs> such a brilliant brilliant movie it's black and white it's only it had to be in black and white. yes it yeah. did of course yeah I mean, and when, when, you the, when you see the movie you'll, you'll see yeah. it had to be in black it, and white. it's an hour and 28 minutes and it's a, it's as you said it's just such a joy it is, it is so funny it did get an oscar nomination for best screenplay i think it was mckendrick's only oscar nom nomination uh alec guinness plays um Plays the fellow, plays Sydney, 
as only Alec Guinness could. Wondrous. Uh, and there are a few character actors. Uh, uh, Cecil Parker plays the uh, boss. And uh, his daughter is played by um, the wonderful, people don't know who she is, the wonderful Joan Greenwood. Yeah. I don't know Joan Greenwood. Well, you saw in Tom Jones. Oh, okay. She played the rather nasty uh, woman at the end, the forget her name. And she was also in Little Dorrit. That was her last film. And she's in a movie that I talked about extensively, The Importance of Being Earnest, from ah, 1952. Right. She has got a voice. Yeah. Like, yes. how do you describe it? Velvet? It is, it is the most unusual voice. But it's so fun to listen to. And it's fun to listen to. She, she was a wonderful actress. And she plays Sydney's kind of a girlfriend love interest who the bosses try to use her against him because she's the daughter of one of the bosses. I, I, I just cannot say enough good things about this film and I always feel very s sorry about Alexander McKentrick because he made several good films in in Britain even though he was born in America and did Sweet Smell of and uh, yes and, and anyway, he did his notable films in Britain were this one and then the Lady Killers in 1955 which is also even yeah just another, as good. another yep. Guinness brilliant <laughs> one and then he came to America he did Street, uh, sweet smell of success, and then from there it just didn't work. He became too much of a, a, a perfectionist. He was fired after a month shooting the guns of Navarone. Interesting. Oh, yeah, and that ended up being by, directed by Thompson. Jay Lee right? Thompson, yeah. and uh, because he was. He was too slow. It's fun. I mean, aside from He's asking, probably asking for a lot of takes, yeah. and that sort of thing. And aside from Powell and Pressburger and David Lean, that's about the only British directors from the fifties that people remember, and that's a real shame. Right. Yeah. And then he did a couple other films that kind of floundered. A uh, High Wind in Jamaica with Anthony oh, Quinn. Oh yeah. No, never Family saw it. Yeah. <laughs> And then he became the uh, dean of the film school of the California School of Arts. Oh. And uh, one of his uh, noted students, uh, which I'll be talking about in the necrology, was Terrence Davies. Ah. Uh, but uh, between uh, The Man in the White Suit, The Lady Killers, and Sweet Smell of Success, he made three of the best films of the 50s. Yes. Made, yeah, no and, argument. And, uh, and this one, everybody should see. It's on uh, Amazon Prime for $3.99. It's worth every cent. Please watch it. It's just, it's... It's it's wonderful. It's such a joy to watch this movie. And Turner Classic Movies will have it occasionally. Too. Right, yeah, yeah. Joan Greenwood's in Kind Hearts and Coronets. Oh, of course! Uh, <laughs> so she's the, she's the that's woman. A, that's a movie. So you have Guinness. seen her, too. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. How could I forget that? I, I don't know. All right, um, so that's... I, I just, there's one thing about that movie that the Guinness character, every time I say it, just gets me is that he just doesn't get it. Yeah, I know! <laughs> He's an innocent. He is literally a lost lamb. <laughs> you know, they, they and, keep... And I, mean, I don't want to say too much more because I'll right. ruin the movie yeah, for people. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, Guinness is a brilliant, one of the brilliant actors of oh, all yeah. time. No, he's one of my favorite actors Me too. of all time. He is the reason I went to go see Star Wars. Really? He, yes, because, I mean, even with all the hype, I just wasn't that interested. It's like, but Alec Guinness is in it. Yeah. I have to go see it. And he was wonderful. Yes, he was. Yeah, magisterial. 
Um, so yeah, again, so and our, our other message is go beyond Lean and Powell, uh, and there are some other great British films from the 50s that we need to check out, especially those uh, that series of comedies with Guinness. Johnny, what's your second? Okay, so my second movie is one that everybody knows. I don't know how many people listening have actually seen it, though, and that's Norma Ray. 1979, directed by Martin Ritt. Yes. Rather underrated director, Martin Ritt. Screenplay by Irving Ravitch and Harriet Frank Jr. And the movie's based on the true story of Crystal Lee Sutton. Uh, starring Sally Field, Ron Liebman, Pat Hingle, Bo Bridges, Barbara Baxley, and mm. Gail Strickland. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. And I and when we first started to do this episode, I was like, well, do I want to do Norma Ray? It seems sort of cliche. And then I said, well, you know, now I'm thinking about it. I really want to see it again. And I tracked it down and I watched it again. Where can it you, is, where it can is you find a, it? It is a terrific movie. Ah, I had to... <laughs> yeah, because I was really surprised to see that even though it's listed on Amazon, they're not streaming it right now. So <laughs> streaming is unavailable. This you can is buy the problem. it. You can buy it. So what I did was, I, I just looked it up and I said, oh, so you can watch it on Star Z. So what I did was, and this is what you should all do when there's a movie you really want to see, just got a trial membership and then delete it the cancel. next day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I've done. So, but it's a terrific movie. I, I just forgot how good it is. And it's very well acted. Everybody in it is good. Um, well, and she was such a surprise because, you know, she'd yes. been doing well, Smokey and the yes. Bandit. Yes and, so. and no. She, she was not quite a surprise because she had already had won an Emmy for Sybil. Yeah. Oh, true. Which was, right, right, she right. was amazing. Which yeah. she was, whoa. Yeah. Right. That was yeah. her I'm not the flying nun moment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. got it. And, and to this day, I think she is, frankly, one of the un most underrated actresses uh, in Hollywood. I mean, I just love her so much. She didn't win for Lincoln, did she? No, she was nominated. She was no. nominated for yeah, Lincoln. Uh, okay. uh, yeah. uh, uh, what's her name? Hathaway won it for Les Mis. Okay, I love Anne Hathaway, so I'm not <laughs> saying anything, but yeah, but her perform you're, you're, I know you love her performance in that. As Mary, uh, Lincoln, as Mary oh Lincoln. yeah. I oh, I love she, her Lincoln. I think yeah. she's the best um, and, Mary Todd Lincoln I've seen. And why didn't Ron Liebman have more of a... I don't know, and it's interesting because I think he's terrific in this. And I read some older reviews, and um, Gene Siskel at the time wrote that he thought that Ron Lieben was terrible in it, and that he's a terrible actor. And I was kind of like, did you see a different movie? Well, he was a terrible critic. It was, it was really strange. Yeah. I was like, did you meet him or something and just really not like him on a personal level? I thought it was a really odd thing to say. No, I think because Ron Liebman is really good in it. My, my, I mean, I, the original Angels in America. Yes, you know, Roy yeah. Cohen. That's one of the greatest yeah. performances yes. I've ever seen. Absolutely on stage. Absolutely, yeah. and he always worked. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he always worked. Uh, but um, but anyway, Norma Ray is a worker in a cotton mill that has taken a big toll on her family, doing the the work conditions there, uh, the the noise, uh, the intense work environment. They're constantly watched. They're constantly pushed to, to keep turning out more and more and more. And it just wears them all down. And she's known within the company as the troublemaker. And the, the executives, as a way to sort of appease her, to try to kind of get her away, they make her a spotter. And after she does that for a short while, she realizes that everybody hates her being a spotter, and she quits that. Um, and a big turning point in her life because the movie is simultaneously sort of a character study of her 
and how the union is how the other all the other workers are slowly uh, informed by by Ron Levin about what the union can do for them, and they they slowly get on his side. How he encourages, and, and they shows how they just work tirelessly, constantly, to try to get this union into this mill. Um, and so a big turning point in her life is is meeting the the Ron Lieben character, and right. the, the dialogue between them is terrific. Yeah, and very a, believable relationship. Yeah, and it's yeah. very very a lot of humor in it. <laughs> And and some of the moments in the movie are are very moving, and of course it has the iconic scene in it when Sally I'm holding Field, up the sign. Sally Field <laughs> finally just has it, and after all the pressure that's on her, and they they want to they want to like fire her. She gets up on the table and holds up the union that sign. Union sign. And one iconic. by one, they turn off their machines, and it's a very powerful yeah. scene. Absolutely iconic. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was a successful film, wasn't yes. it? I mean, I know it was... Yeah. No, it did. It was It was sort she, of a hit. She won the Oscar. And, yeah, right. uh, and deservedly and so. And the movie was up for Best Picture. Yes. But not Martin Red for director, which no. always annoys no. me. No, which... And he should have been. Yeah. And it lost to Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> well, that was the year of Apocalypse Now in Manhattan, too. Yeah, so yeah. not a bad year, 1979. No. Um, and also, you got to... Uh, I thought Bo Bridges... Was also yeah, very really, good. Very oh, good. Yeah. yeah, and he never had the film career that I thought he should have had, or that his brother had. For uh, example, his brother had. <laughs> yeah, Bo Bridges is is someone as a coworker who she meets there, and he becomes interested in her, and finally, like after they've dated a few times, he he proposes to her, and she tells him, "I, I it's a great moment." She says that you know it's been a long time since a man has really like given me this kind of offer really appreciated it me and then you see how her working to promote the unions starts to take a toll on their relationship mm-hmm. because she's working such long hours if i have one criticism of the film and this is me being mm-hmm. picky is i wish and i have a feeling there were scenes that were cut mm-hmm. there was more on on her parents because mm-hmm. pat hingle and barbara baxley are such great actors Absolutely. and baxley's yeah. hardly in it yeah I remember the scene in the beginning where she's deaf. Yeah, yeah. The machine. Yeah, and the doctor boys. Well, you know that's going to happen once in a while. Like, not my mama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have not seen this movie in like maybe thirty-five years, and, and I remember yeah. so many lines. Yeah, yeah. no, there's, yeah. there's there's some wonderful moments in the movie. So if you haven't seen Norma Ray, I very much encourage that you, you see it. It's it's a terrific movie. You know, and you just think about someone trying to hold up a sign that says Union like a Walmart or a Starbucks or yeah. Amazon oh my God. warehouse, and they just sh- they'd shut it down. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it, it's really ridiculous that these movies are more relevant now than they have ever been. Yes. So that's really, yeah. that's really scary. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, that's a good point. I think Norma Ray might be more relevant now than it was when it came in out. 79. There was certainly a lot more people in the private sector who were in labor unions th- yeah. in 79 than there are now, by a yeah. long shot. Yep. So yeah, and look, look, look where it's gotten us. So yeah. there we go. All right, for my second film, I'm staying in the 1930s, but I'm going to France. And I have talked before in these pages about how amazingly underrated Rene Claire is as a director, um, especially the run of four films he had: his last silent film, The Italian Straw Hat, and his first three sound films, which were Sur le Toit de Paris. Pardon my French pronunciation in advance over the rooftops of Paris, and especially the last two, Le Million 
Um, and the one I'm going to talk about, Anu La Liberté, um, uh, all done between 28 and 31, which is about a decade ahead of its time in terms of its use of sound and really in its whole conception. Um, you know, I've always said, to boil it down to a simple analogy, what Lang is to drama, Claire is to comedy in terms of sound. I mean, they real they they understood the possibilities of sound way before anyone else did beyond just recording dialogue and sound. So, um, speaking of it being uh, a little bit ahead of its time, see if this sounds familiar. It's a story of how horrible life is working on an assembly line, and it involves jokes about uh, mechanical lunches. Uh, the chaos caused why when someone falls behind on the on the assembly line, a comic scene at a prison lunch table, and so on. Sound kind of familiar, film fans? Yes, it does. Now, Charlie Chaplin swears up and down that he did not see Anula Liberté before he made Modern Times. And his associates also, you know, confirm that, but what else are they going to do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. in, in fact, there was legal action brought up. Uh, against Cha against Chaplin. The interesting thing, though, it was not brought by Claire. Claire refused to participate in it, and when they asked him why, he said, because Charlie Chaplin is my hero. I don't want to sue Charlie Chaplin. Oh. Right? So, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of guy he was. He was a huge fan, and so he wouldn't do it. Um, so... Where it touches on our theme, our theme of labor and unions, is that like modern times, um, in its, its central metaphor sort of revolves around the idea of, it begins with two friends who are in prison together, and the idea is that the prison assembly line where the film begins is exactly like the assembly line in the factory that we see. Um, so we have Emile and Louis, uh, the main characters who, you know, who come to this realization, they try to escape. Louis escapes only because Emile sacrifices himself so that, uh, so that Louis can. Louis, in a very quick montage, goes on to become the CEO of a phonograph manufacturing company. Again, Claire's always playing with sound. Um, and when Emile finally gets out, he finds Louis, and the film is about their adventures after they meet again, um, and uh, especially after Emile makes it clear, you know, Louis is immediately afraid that Emile is going to blackmail him and tell everybody that he was a, an escaped prisoner. But, you know, you know, Emile is way too sweet to do that. And it's just about the adventures that they have together. And what's so strikingly beautiful, God, I love Renee Claire. Uh, about this, it's a very sweet and charming film like the other three. The ways in which Claire shows the mechanization and routinization of the plant. And in terms of both time and, I guess, sort of aesthetic philosophy, the film is halfway between Metropolis and Modern Times in every sense of the word, in that the look of the film is also stunning. I mean, some of the buildings there, some of the sets look like they came out of Tati's playtime, and for me that's about the highest compliment you can pay. And, you know, the workers moving in perfect synchronization reminds us of when uh, we, we see the, the factory and, you know, Moloch and that whole amazing scene in Metropolis. It moves very much like that. So they have these adventures, and it's like all of Claire's films about social class, and there are some really beautiful setups and great jokes. And in the end, 
Um, when Louis believes that he is finally about to get caught, he we see him make he's opening up a new factory, and the new factory is fully automated. So it's going to be a disaster for the workers, right? No. Because in a typical Claire touch, what Louis decides to do in this speech is give both of the factories, the original and the new one, to the workers. The workers become the owners. And so, just a phenomenally pro-labor film. And then in the end, you know, they, they finally find their liberté, their freedom, you know, when they're just both kind of dressed in, in bums outfits and they're hitting the road together and they're doing it together and that this is the only really true kind of liberté that there is. So uh, just a lovely, lovely film. It's not modern times. But um, if you're interested in Claire's work, if you're interested in this central metaphor of factory work being like in a prison, um, and this incredibly far-reaching use of sound, I cannot, it's easily available. Uh, Anu la liberté, uh, freedom for us from 1931, the great, the one, the only René Claire. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. Michael, what's your third? Uh, my second. Oh, your second, right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to think. Mathema <laughs> Mathematics was never my strong Yeah, suit. well, mine either. Uh, the second film I'm going to talk about is a film that I had better memories of than when I actually recently saw it. I haven't seen it in like 40 years. Uh, it's I'm All Right, Jack, yeah. which is directed by John and Roy Bolting from 1959. Uh, the Bolting Brothers. Bolting Brothers. The Bolting Brothers. Also for, forgotten. Who, uh, you know, as a kid, the only thing I knew uh, Roy Bolting for was marrying uh, Haley Mills when she was 19 and he was like 45. Yeah, it, don't it, like the optics on that. It, ca it, it caused a, a semi-scandal and the marriage did not last. But anyway, and he had uh, made um, uh, one of her... Uh, grown-up films, The Family Way, from 1967, which oh, is quite good. Yeah, Paul and McCartney did some of the music yeah, for that. Yeah, uh, Haley and John Mills were in that. But anyway, this is a satire on industrial relationship where all where the trade unions, the workers, and the bosses are all either incompetent or corrupt. Or both. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a fellow named Stanley, played by Ian Carmichael, He's the son of a wealthy industrialist who tries to get a management job but fails at everything. Finally, he gets a job as an unskilled blue-collar job from his Uncle Bertram at a missile factory. Uh, the communist shop steward, which is brilliantly, brilliantly played by Peter Sellers. Yes. And you would never guess <laughs> that he was, at the time, maybe in his early 30s or late 20s because he, he, he plays a rather middle-aged man and he kind of plays it straight. I mean, he's funny, but he plays it straight. Anyway... Was that one of his first... Uh... It was leading roles. I mean, he, remember, he'd already been in The Lady Killers as one of the killers. That's right. And he had smaller parts, but this was... The, I think the... Sellers started in radio. Yeah, right, The Goon Show. The Goon yeah, Show. Yeah, with Spike Milligan. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, anyway, Peter Sellers is suspicious of him, but then winds up taking him under his wing and even has him as a lodger. Meanwhile, the personnel manager, Major Hitchcock, is assigned, um, um, is assigned uh, to, a, uh, to do a time and motion study expert. 
uh, and uh, they increase, they want to find out how efficient the employees are. And the workers, of course, refuse to cooperate. But then one of the workers is tricked into showing him how much more quickly he can do the job with his, with his uh, forklift truck than the other inex uh, experienced employees. Of course, then they all go on strike. Right, of course. And um, it's such a convoluted script, but it is fun. There are a few scenes that I wince at. It opens and closes in a nudist camp for no reason. <laughs> it's just, it's just like, and it's silly. It's, it's, uh, I'm sure nudists will not appreciate it. And, um, but there are uh, a lot of people, it's also, it's a sequel to a movie called Private's uh, Progress, Progress, which um, was about the army. And mm -hmm. I never saw it, but several of the same uh, actors play the same parts, including Ian Carmichael, Richard Attenborough. Yeah. Who's in this too? Terry Thomas. Uh, Terry Thomas with Terry mustache. Thomas. Yes, yes, of his course. Space between his teeth, and that's uh, that space. And uh, Dennis Price is also in it. Ah. Uh, one of the one of, a nice cameo is done by Margaret Rutherford, Yay. who plays his rather plays uh, Stanley's rather highfalutin aunt. Who, the idea of even talking to the workers is just revolting to her. I mean, any movie that has Margaret Rutherford, even for three minutes, is t to me all right. <laughs> and um, anyway, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure who directed and who produced. Uh, I think um, John is listed as director, but supposedly they it's like the Coen brothers. They, they both produced and, and directed. And directed. And once again, it is on Amazon Prime. It, it's all these factions. They end up on a TV BBC show and they all start killing each other. It's a silly movie. It's fun. But if you have the choice between that and um, um, The Man in the White Suit, pick The Man in the White does, Suit. Uh, does it work as satire? I mean, it does. It, it does. It does work. It's kind of overstuffed. And I don't remember it being that way. Interesting. But then... You know, I, I I don't think I've seen it in forty years. All right. I mean, but isn't it interesting that you've done two that in in our we're talking trying to talk mostly about Hollywood films, but I had to go to France. You've gone to England mm -hmm. twice already, and I, mean, I will for the third film, right? As well. Which also again points out the complete paucity of yeah. of. I remember when I was first searching this, Newsies came up. Disney's Newsies about the the oh, yeah. the newsboys. Yeah. yeah, but that's a great musical on Broadway. Was it lousy film? Was it? I mean, yeah. I never saw either. I mean, if you. You have to have newsies on your Google list of some of the best labor films. You yeah. know this is a genre, a subgenre that's not really too yeah. common or yeah. popular. Well, when you suggested it, I had to think. Right? Norma Ray and and the, a couple others were the only ones that came in. So my we mind. had to dig for these a little bit. It's interesting, except. Four houses for a segue. The one that John is going to do as his last one. One of my probably one of my ten favorite films in the world. Go, Johnny, go. The Grapes of Wrath, uh, 1940, directed by John Ford. Screenplay by Natalie Johnson, based of course on the novel by John Steinbeck, <laughs> with Henry Fonda, Jane Darwell, John Carradine, John Quaylen, Russell Simpson, who I love. And many more familiar faces from the era of movies. Even Ward Bond pops up as a cop in the movie. Yep. <laughs> so, 
Um, is there a John Ford movie that Ward Bond is? <laughs> I was wondering about after that. Did, after after they, Wagon Train. Yeah, after they first first met, I don't think there is a John Ford yeah, movie I'm that just, Ward Bond is sort of his good luck charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean Ward Bond, I think, appeared in over 200 Wait, movies. Wait, is Ward Bond in Liberty Balance? No. No. Ah. But, but, no, after Wagon Train, then he stopped doing movies. Interesting. Well, I'm trying to remember what year Ward Bond died. Uh, I, Early 60s. Yeah. 63, so, I want to say. Yeah, I don't know. But, but it's also, not in Liberty Valance. Yeah, anyway. John Quaylen's in Liberty Valance by Gum. And Quaylen doesn't <laughs> do his usual Swedish shtick in. He's Muley. He's Muley. He's wonderful in it. Um, so, uh, the movie is basically. The family endures an arduous odyssey. It takes place during the, the height of the Depression. And for a lot of people who are not really familiar with this era, besides the economic downfall, there was a terrible drought that was going on in the middle of the country, which just ravaged farms, especially the small family farms. You had centuries of fertile topsoil that was just blown away yep. by by the what they call the dust storms. Um, if anyone's interested, you can go and look up dust storms or dust bowl and see just amazing photographs that were done by all the WPA photographers of the era. Dorothy Lang, Walker Evans. Yes, those, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, some of the photographs are really there. They were supposed to be done just to document what was going on, but they're they're art. They're they're gorgeous. And I think Ford it looks like Ford was influenced by those because there definitely, are a lot of moments that look like those. Oh pictures. yeah, there are definitely moments, especially shots of the uh, of the trucks, the various families, uh, the different yeah. characters. Um, and especially also the, because um, Greg Toland did the cinematography, who, and it's, it's mostly sort of a, a documentary style, but you've got a lot of uh, shots that take place at night that are, that are gorgeous. Natural lighting, yeah, and, when, when yeah. he comes home and no one's there, and it's just the match, and it really is just the match. It really is just the match, and that's, that's one of my favorite moments in the movie. And whenever I think of this movie, um, I, I think of moments. I think of various moments in the movie. Uh, for example, the beginning of the movie when Tom, played by Henry Fonda, is hitchhiking and he's able to get a ride. You're busting a gut. <laughs> get a ride with the with the truck driver and the way the way that the, the relationship between that forms between them um, when he first, you know, meets John Carradine on the way and realizes, weren't you the preacher? And then, you know, he's trying to find his, his family, and that's where they meet up with Muli and realizes the family has gone somewhere else because they don't own their house and farm anymore. The bank has taken it over. And the lighting in that, that's like a great example. The, the, night, the, the, the night shots, uh, it's beautiful. And you've got that, that the wind comes in and the, the cops come and... And um, and, you, and the way the the, the 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 cop like reacts, he like he knows he thinks Muley's in there, and he throws the rock and everything, and it looks for him. And the way they're hiding out in the bushes, and Tom's like, you know, who would ever think I'd have to hide out at my own family's house? Mm. And then when he finally meets up with his family, they're all like busted out. It's like no parole. <laughs> every but they sing- so need to believe he escaped. Is, yeah, yeah, every single one of them are like busted, busted out. It's out. Like, no parole. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, and 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 Jane Darwell and the earrings. And I, the I was just going to mention oh, wow. that. That's one of my favorite moments in the movie. I think it's she's, one of my favorite moments in film. Yeah, she's, it's one of the most famous. <laughs> yeah, she's superb in the movie, and it's really funny because 
It's one of the few movies I actually really like her in. She tended to be sort of hammy sometimes. Well, she always would play bossy. Yeah. You know, like like Gone with the Wind is a, an example. But she yeah. always, and even Ford would would place her so, yeah. is, is bossy and, and in small parts. Yeah, and in small parts. But in this, in this she's great. Uh, iconic. But I love that, that little bit, though. Where uh-huh. She's going through all the... The family belongings and looking at letters and cards and little keepsakes. And she finds the earrings and puts them up by her ears and looks at herself in the mirror, which is a beautiful shot. And smiles. Yeah, and, and then smiles. you see the smile drain away. Because yeah. she was remembering good times and then she yeah. remembers where she is now. Yes, yes. But, and then she puts the earrings in her and takes the earrings with yes. her. So good times may come again. That's right. You you know, talk yeah. about well, she's the one who constantly stays positive. And strong and keeps saying, you've got to move on. We've got to move lost on. lost his place. We've got to move on. <laughs> but um, I don't think it's by accident the family is named Job. It rhymes with Job. <laughs> yeah. Because um, Steinbeck was known for tying in biblical themes into, into his writing. As in East of Eden, sure. Yes. Yeah. But uh, to give a little background, so they, they have to leave their farm to get to California because they've seen these handbills. Mm. And so it's an arduous journey. Just, they just meet challenge after challenge after challenge on their way there. And one, another great moment that I always think of is when they meet up with uh, the stranger who explains to them oh, about, the camp. about the handbills and says, like, you know, print one, you know, and it means that, like, they've distributed thousands. And so maybe, like, another 20,000 people have seen it. And he, ex- and he explains, yeah, yeah. And he explains <laughs> it about what happens to his family. And they're, they're like, oh, my God. Um, and another, another favorite moment is when they go to the internment camp and they see that, which is so horrible. All the children have no food. And, and and you see it from their point of view, point of and view, it's, kind of diag- yeah. it's kind of diagonal. Yeah, Tolan shoots it on a slant. Doesn't look none too none prosperous. None too prosperous. It's yeah. prosperous, but that evolves. That 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 scene, that point was there is also when uh, there's someone who speaks out, and immediately like a cop, like you know, he starts running away and takes a shot at him. He hits a, a an innocent bystander woman. And he wants to take another shot at the guy, and Tom like kicks him, and then Casey comes in and takes the blame. <laughs> I just I love that part with You're John Carradine when he does the. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Amazing. It's just amazing. He hands, puts his hands out to be handcuffed, and the cop just looks at him like, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> I'm curious. Did the film was this was it a successful film? It when made it came money. Out? I don't know how successful it was financially. Yeah. It definitely was critically. It got a lot of praise. Was nominated for a number of Academy right. Awards. Uh, for well, it lost to Rebecca. I know. Which is not. Yeah, I I agree. For I mean, Ford won Best Director. Yes. Um. And it lost to Rebecca, which I, is fun, but it's not really. It's oh, more. It's not more even a, close. It's more no. a Selznick movie than it is a Hitchcock movie. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and and uh, another favorite moment of mine now is uh, when they arrive at the uh, the government camp, and there's that 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 moment when Henry Fonda goes by the spigot. Because they have running water. Running water, again. my god. Running water is like, oh my god. And he just. And schools for the kids. Yeah, and schools dances for the kids and, and dances. And he, he just feels the water and looks at the sign and then turns it off. And he's just. He's, he's enjoying the sensuality of feeling running water. 
It's just such a beautiful moment. And they cast that character actor who looks like FDR, you know, and, and Henry Fonda says, well, why aren't there more places like this? And yeah. the guy says, I don't know, I'm try- I can't find out. You have to find, you out, have for to find out for yourself. Yeah. yeah. But also, and then another scene that I love after that is the dance. Yes. I love, I just... Where the I, guys are coming in to yeah, cause trouble. They're trying, yeah, they say, there's a riot. What riot? I don't see any, yeah. I don't see any riot. I don't hear any riot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, he checks his watch like, hmm, what went wrong? <laughs> and of course, yeah. the, the famous yeah. goodbye scene with Henry Fonda saying goodbye to, to Jane Darwell. That speech, I'm, I'm really interested to know what people think, who've never seen the movie for the first time, will think of that speech now. Will they think it's really corny? Because I... That's not. I no, find, absolutely not. I, I find that speech very, very moving. I teach Grapes of Wrath all the time to high school and college students. That's, this and, is what and, I want to know. They, like, buy, how to, they, they totally are okay. into it. They ah, totally, yeah. Interesting. It's totally moving. Partially because the way it's written, taken right from Steinbeck, but also yeah. because it's yeah. Henry Fonda doing it. And it is. Yeah. And I, he's great. He's it great. Is his, I think it's his best performance. 100%. It is one of my favorite <coughs> film performances of all time yeah. because he's just so real and in the moment. And it's done so simply. Yep. But but everybody in it is good. Uh, I love John Carradine. And, you know, keeping with our theme, there are strikes. You know, they bring the Joes yes. in as... They don't realize yeah, what they're, they're, what they're doing. Yeah. What they're doing is, I mean, you see all these people coming from the Midwest, so many of them from Oklahoma, and they refer to them as the Okies, and they use them as scabs. And the people don't really know what's going on, but they have no choice because they're starving. And Casey finds him and says, you know, they, they paid 25 cents a bucket. Now they're paying you guys 10. You watch. Tomorrow it'll be five. Right. And that's right. exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. Yes. Yes. So, and the only and then there's someone, one of the, uh, someone asked him about being a red. And Tom yeah. doesn't know anything about politics, of yeah. course. He says, what are these reds everybody's yeah, what's this about? about? Yeah, and yeah. that guy tells, that's the one, that's where you have that moment when they're digging your trenches. Right. And the guy who they're working for tells him, like, you know, I like, I like you guys, you so, yep. uh, you know, good workers, and I like you, and I want to tell you, like, there's been some some talk about trouble causing trouble at the dance tonight. Because everybody knows about the dance because they throw the best dances in the county. <laughs> but but everyone forgets that that, that the, uh, the speech is not the end of the film. It's them going to Fresno. Yes. Yeah, yeah. true. Yeah, and that's where Jane Darwell gives her her "We're the, we're the people" speech. And we keep it coming. Yeah, and they and that's where the movie ends. Unlike the book, which continues afterwards, which has a much different ending. Right. And I think they were sort of smart at that time, too. 100%. Yeah, it would have been too long yeah. for one well, thing. Well, and yeah, too... well, not only that, but way too downbeat for yeah. that time. Nobody yeah. would have gone to see the movie. And also, I don't know if they would have gotten it by the censors at that time. Probably not. So, um, I'm surprised they got as much. Uh, what I want to, what I, something censors. I want to say, though, is that... Um, because I just, I don't know how many people, younger people, have seen this movie and how they will relate to it and if they really understand what people went through at this time. The very first time I saw this movie, and I'd already read the book, I remember, I remember this vividly. It was, I was in college, it was during the summer, and it was one Sunday afternoon, it was really hot that day. And I found out, oh, Grapes of Wrath is on, I really want to see this, I've never seen it. And my father was, was home. He was one of the few days on a weekend he really wasn't doing anything. He was just, I think it's because it was so hot. He was just sitting there. And I watched it with him. And it helped me understand more about my father. Hmm. 
because my job. because I already knew this about him, but seeing the movie, seeing it, made it more real to me because he grew up in Missouri during the Depression and experienced the dust storms, and and knew what these people went through, and um, it was it, it was an important moment for me. Interesting, powerful, powerful stuff. So yeah, that's the one you've probably seen. Uh, but if see it again, it, I mean, yeah. I, I show it, you know, when I taught high school film, I showed it every semester. So I've showed it like 20 times. You know I where never... it's streaming? Uh, I have it. So I did not check yeah. to see yeah. if it's streaming. I think it might be an HBO Max. I think so too. I, I think, I I, well, I think at this time it is because they kind of do an association <sighs> with TCM. Yeah. So it doesn't stay on there right, all the time. Right, that's the thing. It True. keeps, and yeah. TCM, keeps does show it TCM does show it. TCM does show it. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm sure it's showing somewhere. You can probably. You, I'm sure you can watch it on YouTube. It, it's a film I never get tired of. Yeah, but um, it was interesting too because this is the other thing on how younger audiences react to because it's a rather slowly paced movie, and there's hardly any music in it. Just the folk songs, you know, like Red River Valley yeah. and such. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think it was slowly paced. Well, by today's standard, uh, I mean it is. And structurally, it's very episodic. There's not a narrative yes, line. Yes. But I, but I tell you know, I ask my students, why do they think it's episodic? And of course, the answer is because these people don't know what's coming tomorrow. They can't. Exactly. They have the, no ability to plan their lives out. Yeah. St- uh, John, as you say, these uh, stuff comes along job-like for them. Yeah. And so it makes sense that their lives are episodic. Yeah. Give them the bread. Give them the bread. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's a day old. Oh my god! It's day old whole... bread. Give him the bread. Give him the bread. Um, just don't just... say one cent candies is five or a nickel a piece. What's candy. it to you? <laughs> so uh, yeah, no. So I was just gonna say wherever there's three fellers doing a film podcast, I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> so... <laughs> wherever there's a curmudgeon. <laughs> I'll be there. Rolling his eyes at everything we say. I'll be there too, Ma. <laughs> Lovely. All right. So um, I uh, I am reading, I uh, just finished reading Adam Hochschild, the great historian, his new book called American Midnight, which is about the concerted attack on civil liberties and rights uh, perpetrated in the name of patriotism by Woodrow Wilson and his government from 1917 to 1921. And we all know a lot of those stories. You may know about the Red Summer and what happened to black soldiers when they came back from World War I, having fought for their country and, you know, for their trouble, they were not only not respected anymore, they were often lynched if they were seen in uniform, especially in the South. I had no idea, though, the level to which violence was perpetrated against Union organizers. And, you know, we know that Eugene Debs was thrown in prison. They went after the socialists. They thought everyone who was in a, trying to form a union was uh, IWW, was the Wobblies, you know. And there were, ter- there were beatings, tarrings and featherings, lynchings, and um, which is lovely because the film I'm going to talk about as my last one is based on a real coal miners strike that happened in West Virginia right in the middle of this period in 1920 and the violence that was perpetrated and the film 
is, uh, of course, Mate One from 1987 by John Sales. Guys, why doesn't anyone talk about John Sales anymore? He's because he's disappeared. He's disappeared. No, I yeah, know, I don't he... know. I don't know what's. It's a good. I'm gonna. Yeah, I mean, I'm checker. I mean, Sakakis Seven. Which I love. Love. Baby, It's You, which I liked. Eight Men Out, my favorite sports film. City of Hope, which everyone's forgotten. Yeah. About, yeah. about like, a newer Passion Fish was great. Oh, I like pa- uh, I Passion Fish. Was, was good. was great. The Secret of Rowan Inish. Uh, Limbo, and the film that I think is probably Sales' masterpiece, which is Lone Star. You know, oh, which, yeah. is, which is sort of like a nice combination of Kane and Touch of Evil. Oh, you know, yeah. like, that's a good way to put it. Lone Star is movie. Great. And of course, you know, John Sayles comes at it as a writer. He was a novelist first and foremost, True. and still is. He's still turning out novels. But, um, you know, and sometimes can get a little writerly. But, I mean, just one great independent film after another. I even liked the last one I saw of his was Limbo, the one that takes place in Alaska. I didn't see that. Beautiful, surprising, you know, always with great actors. You know, David Strathairn sort well, of got the, discovered. The, with, yeah, exactly. Um, there is, you know, and with a film like Mate One, there's no subtlety, you know, and it's slow, and the earnestness can get a little grating. But it's, it's first of all, it's Chris Cooper's first film. And, you know, he has he's gone great, on to be one man. of the most reliable. He plays a former, he's a conscientious objector to the war. He's thrown into Leavenworth. He work, comes to work for the union. He works for the Wobblies. And the Wobblies, or whoever, whatever union is, send him to mate one to help organize the coal workers who obviously are working under horrifyingly dangerous conditions. Um, and the actors, God, Mary McDonald, one of her first major parts, Kevin Ty, you know, Gordon Clapp from NYPD Blue, David Strathern, you know, who's irreplaceable, Bob Gunton, who's the, uh, oh. you, you guys will know as the warden in Shawshank, is wonderful in this, and even James Earl Jones in a relatively small part, as, you know, because there are three main groups of workers. There are the, there are the local workers, there are the Italian workers, just off the boat who were bought in, who brought in to you know be strike breakers and then there's the black workers and of course led by James Earl Jones and of course the union and their hired goons private detectives do everything in their power to uh, to divide and conquer these groups and if they're going to survive and do well uh, the black and the white and the Italian miners have to put aside their differences and stick together. I mean, and it, it's just atrocious. So, you know, the, it's one of these, it's like Grapes of Wrath, John, in that the mining company owns, Black Mountain Mining, right. owns the company store, and they pay them in company right. scripts, so all the right. shopping has to be done at jacked up prices at the company store. Yeah. Um, they own all the housing, so at one point when the workers rumble about striking, they evict them all. And they build a tent city in the forest that feels almost like, you know, what you see in Our Daily Bread, the first film I talked about. So private detectives come in, treachery, infiltration, threats, and some actual violence. Um, And so it becomes this really interesting preview, as it were, of the civil rights struggle of the 50s and 60s. It's like the difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, because Kinahan... Chris Cooper's character is preaching nonviolent resistance. He's taking sort of the Martin Luther. We're only going to get if we commit violence, we're playing into their hands. Right. But the but the miners who live there and who've died there and have seen friends and relatives die, they say at, by the end they're like, listen, 
what, however this ends, you're going home. We're still here. So they get pushed to the point where finally they have to, they do have to commit an act of violence. And the film climaxes in a real shootout that took place in May of 1920 between the, the hired goons of the coal mine and the miners in Mate One. And I won't say what happens at the end, but, it's, but David Strathern, who plays the local sheriff, actually is kind of caught in the middle. Because he does want to protect the company's interests, but he also genuinely cares. He's yeah. one, when is he David Strathair not wonderful? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's it's weird because it's, <laughs> what? Oh, you got one. Once he was not wonderful. He was in a play. Oh, all right. I'm talking about on screen. It's just, but I mean, it, it was when he did play the father in the heiress. He had the most bizarre. Oh, I, remember, I remember you talking accent about that I'd ever heard, and I thought, what is he doing? <laughs> So and and, okay, and and it's we digress. Sorry. It, no, no, but it's really interesting because it's nineteen eighty seven this film is made and already, you know, the the death of unions began only five or six years before that, yeah. with Reagan uh, breaking the air traffic controller strike, and that was the beginning of the end for the union movement. And He's, it's almost looking back at it with a sort of almost like a wistful nostalgia about a time when these three people like these three different groups of miners could actually band together and take care of each other and look after each other. And, you know, as we find out in Grapes, too, that's the only weapon workers have. And, uh, you know, it, it, because it's made clear that Black Mountain, the mining company, would rather shut down the mine than let them unionize. Right. Kind of like, you know, Walmart and Starbucks and yeah. Amazon warehouses and all these other things. So um, it doesn't hurt the movie. Aside from all the amazing character actors, it doesn't hurt that, of course, this being a left-oriented film, your DP is Haskell Wexler. Uh, who, ah, who, that's who, right. Who once didn't get fired, you know, <laughs> and, he, and it's... it's, it's beautifully shot, of course. And I... I, I, I end on this with Jonathan Rosenbaum, one of my favorite critics. His comment was, he called it simple-minded but stirring. And I think it's time to re-explore all of John Sayles' work. I think it's unjustly forgotten, but Mate One in particular stands out, especially, as we were saying about these other films, that it seems to be more relevant now, in this time of people fighting against unionization, than, than it did back in 1987 when Sales made it. So check out all of John Sales and especially check out Mate One. Probably my second or third favorite film made the, about the labor movement. The last movie he directed was Go for Sisters, 2013. Yeah, nothing. I, I don't know. Do you guys know that he actually did an early draft of E.T.? No. No. Yeah. It was, at that time, it was titled Night Skies. I just know Melissa Matheson as the screenwriter. Yeah, for and he has an uncredited rewrite for Apollo 13. That he's wouldn't been, surprise me. He's kind of writing, he's sort of all over the place. But yeah, yeah you're right, he's sort of concentrated on doing, you know, writing his, his, his novels. His novels. Um, he's a, he did a writer, he's been writing for TV, uh, he was a writer on The Alienist 2018. Which was... A terrible adaptation of a book I truly love. So that happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, Michael, what's your uh, okay? My last there? one is um, Pride, and a lot of people not seen it. I take it an- either one. I have not seen it. Oh, you did see I did it. Yeah, I've oh. seen it. Oh, but okay. interesting, another non-Hollywood film. It's definitely a non-Hollywood film. It is directed by Matthew uh, Warchus uh, with an original screenplay by. 
uh, Stephen Beresford. And uh, Warches is kind of a fascinating filmmaker. He's only directed three theatrical films that weren't just a, a, a streaming uh, from one of his plays. He's the uh, current um, artistic director of The Old Vic. Oh. And he's directed a lot of plays, a lot of plays here. He directed uh, True West, the one with uh, Philip, Philip Seymour, Seymour Hoffman Yay. and John Riley. And he directed Boeing, Boeing, which is a ridiculous play. And yet it on Broadway, well. yeah. it was funny as yeah. heck. And The Norman Conquest, which was a favorite of mine. I saw all nine hours both here and <laughs> London. And, but the only, and his biggest hit was Matilda. The musical. He directed Matilda on Broadway, Yay! and he directed the movie. I one of and my the movie musicals. is actually better. Have you you've seen the movie? I've haven't seen the you? movie, and I saw the show four times. Yeah, but it, I thought it was a very good stage uh, uh, production. And yet, when I saw the film, I thought, "Oh my God, this is better." Love and it. it was too bad that it was pretty, for the most part, limited to streaming. Because yep. I think it would have been a hit. I, I feel very bad about that. Anyway, Pride is based on a true story in 1984, the famed Miners Strike. In Wales, right? In Wales. And um, I'm going to say this in just a few sentences because there's a lot of little plots that go on, but it's basically a true story about when a bunch of gay rights, men and lesbians, gays and lesbians, went to not only openly supported them and raised money for them, but they went up there to help them uh, to Wales. And with mixed results at first, because some of the miners had never seen a homosexual in their life. <laughs> and um, so if, if there's one problem I have with the movie, it's kind of overstuffed. There are a lot of um, plots. There's one about a young man who's 20, and apparently in those days you couldn't be gay until you were 21. Ah. Uh, Go England. And he, he'd never, you know, he was just coming out, and he was coming out in, in many ways. It was very well played. And then there was a couple, a gay couple, who were having problems. This was also the beginning of AIDS. Right. 84. 84. And, uh, and then in the... Um, in the uh, town, you see how they were working, how they were making sandwiches for the uh, miners. There were committees. Bill Nye plays one of the old miners who we find out, spoiler alert, he's closeted gay. Uh -huh. Never said a word to anybody. His, his sister-in-law, his younger brother died in the mines. His sister-in-law is very anti-gay. She never, she just loathes them. Another woman who's married to one of the um, uh, minors, it changes her life when the gays come, and she just gets more and more involved, and she winds up, you find out at the end, uh, having a seat in Parliament. <laughs> and this is a, was a mousy woman. and uh, I, I don't know how 100% true all these stories are, but what's really brilliant is after, of course, historically, the minors lost, and right. yet, uh, like a few, couple years later, you see um, there's a gay march, and all the miners and the miners come. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember. That. Yes, it's very moving. Wow. Uh, I cry when I think of it. <laughs> and then the closing 
reveals that the uh, Labor Party incorporated rights for gays and lesbians in their party pro uh, uh, platform due to an overwhelming massive vote lodged by the National Union hmm? of Mine Workers. And yet it, it's somewhat realistic. Not everybody in the town, the support on Bill Nye's uh, sister-in-law, uh, never comes around or anything like that. Uh, I meant I gotta mention Imelda Staten is also in it, and she's she's Imelda's son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I love this movie. It's not a great movie. It is overstuffed, but I do recommend it if you haven't watched it. And once again, this guy Matthew Wars does not seem like a theater director. <laughs> the only other film he's directed is uh, Sam Shepard as Simpatico. Oh. Which I didn't see. No, I didn't. Uh, I was with uh, Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges. And it was, from what I understand, not successful. Don't know. But uh, he's primarily a theater director, but he really is good, like Mike Nichols. You know, he's very good in film, and but I, I think he chooses to stay mostly theater. Mostly theater. And, uh, and, it's, is, and it's a true story. Is it, uh, where is it available? Uh, Showtime. Oh, okay. Showtime On Demand. Great. Yeah, fantastico. So, yeah. so there it is. I mean, this very strange, you know. And again, four of the films we talked about, three of Michael's and one of mine, are are foreign films. And and one of mine, uh, Daily Bread, was made outside of Hollywood. So, you know, this is this is a real problem that Hollywood ignores this issue. And I hope, as always, that we have opened some doors to some films that you haven't seen in a while or haven't seen at all, and that you will come back to because you know the labor the, the the labor movement it's it's as an important issue not just for SAG-AFTRA and the actors but for everyone trying to make a, a, a decent living these days so there it is all right so we move on to the necrology which I hope is uh, fairly short this time around yes yes fairly short uh, the first person is someone one of our most loyal uh, listeners texted me and said, I better put him, put this fellow in because uh, he act is an occasional actor, writer, producer, and that's Jimmy Buffett, which really? I didn't know. I did not know that. He's known as a later day folk hero to many, especially baby boomers. His one top song Margar was Margaritaville. But as a film producer, he was responsible for Sundogs, Hoot, and Jazz Fez, a New Orleans story. As an actor, he appeared in The Beach Bum, as himself, Billionaire's Boys Club, mm. Jurassic World, Congo, Repo Man, FM, Hook, Rancho Deluxe, and Hoot. He was also seen in, t in TV in roles in Blue Bloods, Hawaii Five-O, and uh, From the Earth to the Moon. Mm. And the only thing I remember... The only thing of these movies that I've seen was Repo Man, and I don't remember him in it. I think he had a very small Yeah, part. no, I don't. I uh, think he played a marshal or another something. Another unfortunately forgotten film, but uh, that's a whole other yeah. story. Anyway, 76. Franny Lee, 81. Set and costume sure, designer. Sure, sure, sure. She won three Tony Awards, two as set and costume designer for the Broadway revival of Candide, and for costume designer for... The original Hell Prince production of Sweeney Todd. She also worked wow. as the costume designer for the first five seasons of Saturday Night Live. That's right. Among her costumes were for the Coneheads and the Killer Beads. Yes. Her films include Chinese Coffee, 
Sweet Nothing, Baby It's You, Total Stranger, yes. and Guild Alive. When Sweeney Todd's director, Harold Prince, thought that Mrs. Lovett's apron was too clean, Franny Lee threw a plate of spaghetti bolognese at Angela Lansbury before her entrance, and that's nice. how the costume got to where it was. <laughs> Love it. Nancy Bursky, 78, documentary filmmaker. Hmm. She won an Emmy and a Peabody Award in 2011 for The Loving Story, oh. uh, which dealt with the interracial marriage of Mildred Virginia. and Richard Loving, yeah. which was illegal in Virginia and the basis of the challenge to that law, which resulted in a landmark civil rights ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that, of course, voted all, uh, all those laws. She also directed The Rape of Recy Taylor about the 1944 kidnapping of a black woman by seven white men. Hmm. And also uh, directed by Sidney Lamette about the acclaimed filmmaker. And most recently, Desperate Souls, Dark City, and The Legend of Midnight Cowboy, which explored the 1969 film and was shown at the Film Forum in June, which I saw. Oh. And uh, it was good? It was good. It was Frankly, better than Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> they were showing Midnight Cowboy, and I thought, you know, I saw this documentary, and it was it was very very interesting. And uh, they talked to all the most or most of the survivor actors and stuff, and it was it talked about that that period, and and she really delved into. And then it, it was rated X and one. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Robert Klein, 81, comic novelist, screenwriter, and filmmaker. He adapted his novel, Where's Papa? Ah. Which was directed by Carl Reiner and starred George Siegel and Ruth Gordon, Gordon, which dealt with a young attorney who was torn between the love of his mother and the urge to throw her out the window. <laughs> that was how the movie was advertised. <laughs> <laughs> he also wrote the screenplay to Weekend at Bernie's, the 1989 film about two young insurance company employees who create the illusion that their murdered boss is still alive. <laughs> it's so stupid. It but was. It, it is funny though. I guess I I just remember. Thinking, it hasn't aged well for me. I, I liked it. I when haven't it seen it. Yeah. I didn't even like it that much when it came out. I thought oh, it's a one joke movie. It was definitely a one joke movie. But then, Klein directed the sequel, Weekend at Bernie's Two. How did they make a, a sequel to that? Because it made money. But how? What was the story? How could they have? I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I felt the same way when they made a. Um, a, a, a sequel to The Hangover. I loved the first one, but how yeah. could a second and third? I didn't bother they to were, see they it. They were atrocious. And I heard they were atrocious, but yeah. it was like, how can you do it, considering the story? Uh, he also wrote National Lampoon's European Vacation, yes, the remake of Unfaithfully Yours with Dudley Moore, <laughs> and The Man with One Red Shoe. <laughs> yeah. He also, directed the, the fi- he also directed the film, Thank God It's Friday. <coughs> That's a fun one. I like it's that. Yeah. I saw it. Uh, disco roller. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And wrote episodes for MASH and Tracy Takes On. Okay. Listen, Tracy Ullman likes him. He's good in my book. Okay. David McCollum. Uh, 90. British film theater and TV actor known primarily for two TV series. The Man from Uncle, where he played a mysterious spy, Ilya Kuryakin, which ran from 1964 to 1968, and he received two Emmy nominations for it. And NCIS, where he played medical examiner Donald Ducky Mallard. Hmm. 
He played that role from 2003 to last May. Really? Yeah. Okay. I never watched NCIS. Sorry. No. There are about 12 different NCISs. Yeah, but now. he was on all of them, apparently. <laughs> oh, well, the yeah. cast was always changing. Yeah, except yeah. for him. Yeah. He was, I, I, I imagine he didn't have huge parts in him, in uh, those uh, episodes, but he was also seen in many films before Man from Uncle. The most famous included uh, A Night to Remember, Billy Budd, mm. Freud, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and my favorite, the Great Escape. The Great Escape. Oh, yeah. Yes, and, he has that famous scene on the railroad tracks. Yeah. Yep. And it's funny because after um, after the Man from Uncle ended, he got you know weak you know parts in uh, shows, guest starring roles, but he didn't really do much. He did a lot of theater. Interesting. He, I remember seeing him in Julius Caesar as Julius Caesar in the park, and. Uh, he was in uh, the philanthropist, he did, but not leading roles. But he, he constantly worked, so he just co- sort of kept working yeah, to kept reinvent that same himself. Hairstyle too. And yeah, did he? I don't <laughs> know. I, I've never watched NCIS. I, I had seen. I watched NCIS occasionally in the beginning, and then it just it kind of lost me after a while. Yeah, I just didn't watch it. Terence Davies, yeah. seventy-seven, British director and screenwriter, known for being a poetic filmmaker. He only directed 10 full-length films, but several of them were critical successes, both in Great Britain and in the U.S. He had made several short films in England, but landed on the map with Distant Voices, Still Lives from 1988, which starred Pete Postlewaite as an abusive Liverpool father who terrorizes his wife and children. The Guardian described it as, as an early autobiographical masterpiece and declared it as gripping as any thriller. Hmm. His next noticeable film was for was The Long Day Closes from 1992, which is an indictment of the Catholic Church in the eyes of, the, of a gay teenager hmm. Liverpool, uh, in Liverpool. His first adaptation was a film version of Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth in 2000, which starred Gillian Anderson, Eric Stoltz, oh, sure. Eleanor yeah. Braun, Elizabeth McGovern, and Dan Aykroyd, which I... Remember seeing when it came out, not remembering too much about it, and I watched it last night. And? It's pretty good. It's not as good as Age of Innocence. Right. But then I don't think The House of Mirth is as good a book as The Age of Innocence. Quite so agreed. Quite so agreed. maybe I'm being... Um, but it was well acted, and even Dan Aykroyd, you know, he plays it really straight. It was a cr- critically successful, but it was not a financial success. Two of his later movies were based on the lives of poets, A Quiet Passion, in which Cynthia Nixon portrayed Emily Dickinson, hmm. the reclusive 19th century American poet. And then there was last year's Benediction, oh, which focused he, oh. on World War One poet Siegfried Sassoon. That oh, was very I love, good. Remember when we talked about the year? Yeah. And I said that was a better World War One movie than All Quiet. Yeah, that was a good movie. I, I, I did like Loved it. Loved that movie. But his most critically successful film was 2012's The Deep Blue Sea based on the Terrence Radican play about a middle-aged wife of a judge who has an affair with a much younger military off- officer. It was already filmed in 1955 with Vivian Lee, mm. but this version was considered far superior. Rachel Weiss was the woman, Tom Hiddleston was the officer, and Simon Russell Beale played the judge. 
Rachel Weisz won the New York Film Critics Award for Best Actress, but failed to get an Oscar nomination. That year, the uh, Oscar went to Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook. But it's very, very intense. And not only is it better than the Vivian Lee version, which is kind of bland, I thought it was better than Terrence Radican's play. Hmm. It's, it's just... Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I've seen it. yeah. He, he, it's very, very intense. And yet, not a, not a uh, hmm. financial success. He never had financial success here, so... I could see why. And then the last one. Sir Michael Gabon. Yes? Oh, uh, yeah. This one makes me sad. British stage, screen, and TV actor. A member of Laurence Olivier's National Theatre Company, he made his film debut in Olivier's Othello in 1955. For the next... 1965, sorry. For the next 20 years, he made a name for himself in London theatre. Ralph Richardson named him the Great Gabon. Hmm. And British television, most notably the miniseries The Singing Detective in 1986, which won him the first of four BAFTA awards. His movies included The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, A Dry White Season, Toys, A Man of No Importance, The Wings of the Dove, Dancing at Lunasa, The Insider, Sleepy Hollow, Mm. Gosford Park, is the murder victim. Sure. Bean Julia, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zuzuzu, sorry, Zuzu, <laughs> The Good Shepherd, Emma, Quartet, and The King's Speech. But of course, yeah. his most famous film was a Stumbledore in six Harry Potter films, a role he was cast in after the death of Richard Harris, who played him in the first two Potter films. And you know, he wasn't the first choice to replace him. Uh, they wanted um, Ian McKellen. Of course. And he was Gandalfing. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's what McKellen said. He says that he had no interest. And he wanted Peter O'Toole. They, they wanted Peter O'Toole. Interesting. O'Toole wouldn't do it because of his friendship with Harris. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense to me. But I like Gavin better than Richard Harris. I do too. Yeah, that's a loss. On American television, his most notable performance was as Lyndon Johnson in Path of War, directed by John Frankenheimer. Yeah, he was really film. good in that. And that won uh, Sir Michael an Emmy nomination. Sadly, and I've seen him on stage, too. He uh, was in Skylight, David Harris Skylight, which won him an Emmy, a a, a Tony nomination. And did an off-Broadway Samuel Beckett play, uh, radio play, at uh, off-Broadway with Eileen Atkins. And I I had the title and I didn't write it down, sorry. But in, sadly, in 2015, he had to give up theater acting because he couldn't, couldn't remember, remember lines. 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 Yeah. And that, that's the part that makes that's, that's, that's and it made him sad. I'm sure. It really did. But he kept working. One of his last performances was as Winston, Winston Churchill in Churchill's Secret in 2016. Mm-hmm. Great actor. He yeah. really was. Great actor. Flawless. And people loved him, the, the Harry Potter kids. Talked extensively about what, yeah, a, what a, sure. yeah, I could see that, and a fun guy. Yeah, I could see. He yeah, was, that's a loss. He, yeah. he really, I, I just love him. Love him. Right. Love him. Thank you, Michael. That was, uh, that was, that's a rough one. All right. So we now move on to America's favorite segment of Vintage Sand. That's right, folks. That would be John Meyer's monthly quote quiz. Not semi this time bi-monthly, but here you go, Whoa. Johnny. What do you got for us okay, last time? So this time, the last episode's quote was. He'd strangle in his own spit if he didn't have me around to swab out his throat for him. 
That was Burt Lancaster speaking to Montgomery Clift in From Here to Eternity, yes. 1953, directed by Fred Zinneman. And if you haven't seen From Here to Eternity, you must live under a rock or something. Because people have it, though. Younger people have it. I guess not, because I watched it recently. It's a terrific movie. Oh, I it's, love it. It's, I don't get tired of it. I don't either. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's like a really great movie, but it's there's something about it. I just... I never get tired of it. It's really entertaining. Yep, I, I think it's one of Cliff's best and performances. And it's really it's interesting. Best oh yeah, it's and it's really interesting that the movie was very popular mm -hmm. when it came out, but it's such a downer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's just a complete across the board downer to every character. And the original casting that they were going to do. Yeah, I know. Uh, Aldo Ray. <laughs> Yeah, in the Lancaster role, uh, Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford. She well, they was actually fired, they cast. fired her because she kept complaining about her wardrobe. Yeah, and <laughs> but if you read the book, Deborah Carr is the last person on earth you would suspect for that role, yes. and she is great She's in great. it. Yeah, casting against type. Talk about it, and Donna Reed. And Donna yes. Reed's excellent. excellent. Yeah. yeah, and. and um, um, now Ernest Borgnine, whom I usually, eh, but he's great in it. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I love that Anyway, movie. all right, so the new our, quote is, drum roll, you're about to bust a gut to know what I done, ain't you? Well, I ain't a guy to let you down. Homicide. Mm. Emphasis on the pronunciation of, of that word. Homicide. All right, so there you have it. So if you think you know the answer to it, and I think you might have a good clue, um, please uh, check out our website, www.vintagesand.com, for the answer and for further information on the films we talked about today and other fun tidbits for you. So that is it, our examination of... Uh, the stories of workers, of unions, of labor, histories and struggles in, um, in Hollywood and other films. Uh, for our next episode, which will probably come off in early December, we did it with the Irishman, so there's no reason why. There's another three-and-a-half-hour Martin Scorsese film coming down the pike, so we are with great excitement looking forward to Killers of the Flower Moon. And so we will devote our episode entirely to that film, to uh, our thoughts on it, and also to sort of trying to place it in the context of where it fits in the themes of Scorsese and his career. So, and that's about it, my friends. So I want to remind you at this point in the narrative, I always do, that Vintage Sand is a five nines and a four production. Really got to thank Melissa for saving our bacon today on yes. the tech. Thank you, to, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa Ariel Cabot. want to thank Mama Sue for the use of the Paul Theo for the kick-ass logo. Remember, please, that we are on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Again, please check out the website and leave us your feedback and suggestions. And we, I hope that this episode has had you, wherever you stand on these issues, consider that... Um, that the labor issues that Michael talked about at the beginning that have kind of stopped Hollywood a bit in its tracks and uh, that the idea that all of these films have in common that is that we are all stronger together than we are alone. And if yes. there's one theme that once runs through all of them, it's that. So celebrate that. Celebrate everything else that's worth celebrating. And as ever, we hope fervently that your favorite films will always be streaming.